If you would, grab a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our passage this morning is verses 12 through 20 in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. As you're turning there, and before we pray and begin here, I, I just want to give a, a warning to parents of young children that our passage this morning deals with some pretty mature content, uh, specifically content relating to sexual sin. And I will make this commitment to you up front. I, I'm pretty sure I'm handling it tactfully. Uh, I also want to say that I strongly believe that our youth need to hear this too, but I recognize there's an age threshold somewhere in there that you'll need to consider for yourselves. So for our youngest children, this might bring up more questions than you are prepared to answer or want to answer right now. So if you're live streaming out there, I would suggest maybe you hit pause right now, read the text first, and then decide how you're going to proceed. Viewer discretion is advised, as they often say on TV. So while you're considering that, uh, Lord, we ask that you would use this time to speak to us. Use your word, Lord, to speak to us by your spirit through your servant Paul as he writes to not only the Corinthian church, but to every church. And certainly, Lord, this is a topic that every one of us um, needs to hear and needs to wrestle with and, and ultimately needs Christ uh, for purity and victory and hope and joy and freedom. So, Lord, I pray that you would use this time for that purpose, to build us up, to bless us, to grow us in maturity and love for you and holiness, that we would live lives that please you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you remember uh, for the Corinthians, uh, the serious problems that were associated with spiritual immaturity in the Corinthian church were caused in great measure because of their confusion about their identity. They were, they had forgotten, they were not living into this reality that they had this new identity now in Jesus Christ, and rather they were still being pulled and drawn into you know, seeing themselves very much like the rest of culture would see themselves. The Corinthian culture, the, the pagan values, which we would say are ungodly values, and, and the philosophies and the identities of that surrounding culture, and therefore they weren't really looking much like the church ought to look. They weren't living their lives in a way that was reflective of Christ. They looked a lot like the world. And it's, it's maybe this, and I, and I wonder this, because that problem that we express about them is certainly a universal issue for believers. It's a universal issue in churches. Is it that, that they and we understand and, and sort of grasp, at least in theory, this idea that, that God forgives our sins in Christ? He forgives our sins but maybe we don't seem to grasp in the same level that he also delivers us from them, right? That we're not just forgiven, but we're, we're transformed into, into new people who don't have to sin this way anymore. That, that he is, is making us holy both in our status, that we are seen as righteous before him because of Christ, and also in our conduct. It's reflected in the fruit that our, our lives bear. Sexual immorality was one of the serious problems in the Corinthian church. We've already read how Paul has addressed some very specific examples of that. If you remember back in chapter 5, 
He, he, he rebukes the church for, you know, not dealing, not addressing a, a, a man, a young man in the church who was actually sleeping with his own father's wife. He's talked about that already. Uh, at the end of chapter, or excuse me, the beginning of chapter six, there's, there's some specific uh, identifications with people who are, who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, and sexual immorality plays a big part of those descriptions for Paul. But now as we get into the latter half of chapter 6, he's going to address this problem of sexual immorality more broadly. So look with me at the text, verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Before we examine the text more thoroughly, it'll be helpful to have a little background on the actual sexual attitudes in Corinthian culture. What's Paul writing into? What's he addressing here? And how is it affecting the church? Well, we've already covered this and probably said it a million times. Corinthian culture was all about achieving status, right? The, the, the whole aim of, of life in, the, in that culture was that you wanted to gain your, your status. You wanted to be perceived as wise, right? It was all about sort of this upward movement up the, up the social chain. And because that was so prevalent even marriage was often seen as just a means to achieving an end more than it was about romantic or sexual fulfillment. Marriage was just another way in which many people would see, you know, climbing the social ladder. So men would, would often take a wife in order to produce legitimate heirs, or, or we might say sort of well-heeled offspring. Or maybe they would, they would take a wife in order to secure a strategic political alliance or social alliance. And by the way, yes, this was a, not a culture in which women had much say in that matter. Men were the pursuers. <laughs> but, but that's the way men often would think about it. And so women were sort of just subjected to where do I fit on the totem pole of social status and how is that going to you know, dictate who I get to marry? All that to say, though, is this sex within marriage was, was not necessarily pursued for pleasure. Therefore, it was not uncommon for men in particular to frequent a brothel. 
Prostitution was very, very common. And it was not considered a social taboo, much like it is today. In fact, it was a regular part of of not only social interaction, but religious interaction and gatherings. Temple precincts would, would often host these social dinners, and at the end of the dinner, what was expected was that prostitutes would be brought out and offered to guests. It was, it was socially acceptable. It was even expected for things like that to occur. So what we, what we need to, to, I guess, ultimately land on is that sex and sexuality were very much out in the open in first century Corinth. Now, some of that goes, goes, you know, to levels that, that would even shock a highly sexualized society like our own. But if we, if we really evaluate our own culture, there's no doubt that sexual attitudes in American culture are not all that different. Even if we have some more social taboos, all that really means is that we're doing probably the same things. We're just maybe doing it more in secret, right? The truth is our society's general attitudes about sex within marriage are not any more optimistic, we hear the jokes, we, we see the, the way, you know, marriage and sex and marriage is often portrayed in movies and TV. It's sort of joked about as being pleasureless or monotonous and even stifling. And as a result, it's not super desirable, right? Sex outside of marriage is no longer a taboo thing, but, but again, expected, Recent studies show, this is, this is, I guess it's shocking to me and it's not, but recent studies show that by age 20, 75% of Americans have had premarital sex. So this idea of sex within marriage seems to be the, the, the minority view rather than the, the majority position. Extramarital sex is fairly common too. According to the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy, 15% of married women and 25% of married men have had extramarital affairs. And while most married men and women don't regularly visit brothels, although that certainly happens too, this, this seems to be maybe the biggest sexual trap of all. Many studies have been conducted on online pornography use. And get this, 40 million Americans, 40 million, say they regularly visit porn sites. 70% of men ages 18 to 24 visit a porn site at least once a month. So are we in a highly sexualized society filled with sexual immorality? Yeah, just like Corinth. And of course, sex and sexual images are everywhere right? We look on television, we see movies, we see billboards, we see magazine ads. You know, it, it, it sort of dictates our, our fashion culture, our, the clothing that we wear. You think about the uh, obsession with health and fitness uh, that we have and making our bodies look a certain way. How much of that is really geared towards a perception that we want to create about our sexiness or our sexuality? So all of this is what the Bible would condemn as sexual immorality. Again, look back at chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
To our shame, though, and to the shame of the Corinthian church, all of these things are too common in the church. What Paul is addressing here is, is not just something that's an, an external threat to them, but, but clearly he's addressing something that's affecting the church's daily interaction with one another. It seems quite clear that the church may have even been having these kinds of dinners where prostitutes were being brought in and, and just so, so enmeshed in the cultural practices that they had not in any way set themselves apart from that. And of course, the church today, again, I, that, that kind of thing, I, I, I can't say I've heard of that happening, but I can say this, certainly uh, premarital sex uh, is very common in the church. Pornography use is one of the, the biggest struggling points for people in the church. And, and we're reminded of, of what Paul says, and, and so I had Jermaine read from Ephesians 5. Paul says this, this is not to be the mark of the church at all. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity, all covetousness, which is so deeply rooted in our sexual desire. He says, that must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This is not Christian behavior. This is not reflective of Christ. So the Corinthian Christians were failing in this regard, failing to have sexual attitudes that reflected their new identity in Jesus Christ. And I want us to, to seriously ask ourselves, you, you probably are already thinking about it, do you? Does your sexual life reflect your new identity in Christ? And I want us to examine more closely then what Paul has to say about proper sexual attitudes in Christ. And specifically, how do we use our bodies? How do we use our bodies? That's why I titled the message here, Glorify God in Your Body. That's how Paul ends the section of the text. But, but let's ask this question first. What are our bodies for? What are they for? Look again at verses 12 and 13. He says, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What is he doing here? He's actually employing this sort of back and forth argument and response pattern here between either something that was a, a common cultural maxim in Corinth or maybe something specific that the church had said to him, writing a letter to him, asking him certain questions. Maybe, maybe it's both. Maybe they're asking because it is a cultural maxim. But, but he's, he's, he's sort of stating what they've said, and then he's given this response to the argument. So he says here, all things are lawful for me. That is the cultural maxim. That's not Paul speaking here. He's, he's addressing what's being said out there. And that's why we see it here in quotes. This idea that all things are lawful for me was a maxim because it fits the ideal of freedom, freedom that the Greek and Stoic philosophers would have championed so much in their day. In fact, a prominent first century Stoic Epictetus would say it like this. He says, this is, this is freedom. He is free who lives as he wills, who is subject neither to compulsion nor hindrance, 
nor force, whose choices are unhampered, whose desires attain their end, whose aversions do not fall into what they would avoid. So in other words, he's saying this is true freedom, that I can be completely self-determined. I can be self-determined to do what I want with myself, with my body, whenever I want or however I want to do it. And then if I'm really free, no one else can really claim authority over me to tell me otherwise unless I grant that because I'm self-determined. Or unless I agree with that authority's uh, message, I, in other words, I deem it appropriate. Now, if this is the ideal of human freedom, you can see how it affects sexual attitudes. This is where we, we, would, we, would, we would, you know, hear something like, my body, my choice. It's, it's my body to do with what I want. And you can see how that same logic is fully embraced today, by the way, right? But here's what, what, what Paul wants us to ask. Is this true freedom? Is that really freedom? I love how he chooses to address this, this maxim, all things are lawful, because he could have responded by saying, no, actually it's not right? He could have spent a lot of time just, just going through Old Testament scriptures or teachings of Jesus and say, actually, there are specific laws against this kind of behavior. He could have done that, but that's not what he does. Instead, what he does is he responds to the underlying philosophy itself. All things are lawful. There's this, there's this plea for, for freedom here, and he wants them to evaluate what really is freedom. And so he says in response, you say all things are lawful for me. I say, but not everything's helpful. In other words, there are things that, that you might feel like you have the freedom to do, but that doesn't mean that they actually benefit you. There are lots of things that, that we might do that bring harm to us. And so are we really free if what we're doing is ultimately destroying us? We are free, I think Paul would assert, and I'll explain this because I think he gets more, more specific about this, but ultimately we are free when we exist within the parameters that we were actually made for. When, when we function the way that, that, that we, we actually can function and flourish. And I've used this example many, many times before here at Edgewater, so forgive me if you've heard this, but, but think about it. There's, there's so much truth to that. The limits of my freedom, the limits of my freedom in a beneficial way come to an end about four blocks east of here. If I were to walk over to the shore of Lake Michigan and look out on that water and look back and say, okay, this land that I've been, you know, I've been bound to this land now for, you know, 46 years of my life and, and there's all of this space out there that I have not yet been able to traverse and I desire to know it all. I could walk out into that water, right? I could exert my freedom, but what would I be doing? I'd be stepping into an environment that actually is going to kill me because it's too cold for me. There's no oxygen level in there for me. It's too deep. I'm going to drown, right? So my freedom is actually most fully expressed when I stay within the parameters in which I actually can flourish. And that's exactly what Paul's trying to get them to understand here. Not everything's beneficial, just because you might have a freedom 
And he wants them to understand this, that freedom isn't just freedom from something. But in order to be meaningful, it must be freedom for something. You, th- you think about how, how freedom has been applied you know, to our own, uh, our own national identity and our own national motto. When the Declaration of Independence was issued, it wasn't just a declaration that says, we're free from the King of England. We're free from the bonds of, of English rule. It was actually expressed in a, no, we're free to pursuit of life and liberty and happiness, right? That's where freedom is demonstrated, not just in what we're free from, but what are we freed to? So Paul's saying, look, it's not all helpful. Secondly, I won't be mastered by anything. All things are lawful for me, but I won't be mastered by anything. He's saying anything that, that's, that's outside of those parameters in which we actually flourish is not freeing, but it's actually enslaving. People inevitably become enslaved to their sins. And so we, we have this, this, uh, this sexual revolution that, that we as 21st and 20, late 20th century Americans have been living under for you know, 50 years now. Has that made us more free? Or has it actually enslaved us all the more? Did you know that the fastest growing 12-step programs in the world involve sexual addiction? The more we express our freedom to be sexually casual, the more we actually open ourselves up to objectification, right? We, we lose our sense of, of, you know, really a sense of control and a sense of, uh, uh, of value when we give up our modesty and purity in such a way in which we say, look, I'm just, I'm available for whatever, And, and Paul says, that's, that's enslaving. That's the opposite of freedom. And certainly, we can see that. It, certainly, if, if, if you have struggled with sexual sin, you, you know it's, it's not easy to disentangle yourself from it. it, it there's an addictiveness. There's a quality to it that, that is deeply entangling. And, and why is that? It's because this, sexual relationships, whether they're real or not, whether they exist physically or just emotionally or mentally, they're never casual. We like to think that they're casual, but they're never casual. There is an attachment that goes well beyond our body, that touches our our heart, that touches our very soul, which is why down in verse 16, he reminds us that that that. The creation of sex itself, which is a gift from God. God says this, the two will become one flesh. That is not just some, you know, uh, meaningless, casual bodily connection. There is a deep link that happens, and it's meant to happen that way. It cannot not happen that way. So Paul's saying, look, what, what is your body for? You say it's for freedom. Paul isn't opposed to freedom. In fact, he affirms freedom. But he says true freedom, true freedom is found in knowing that there's actually a higher ethic than my own, and, I, and I'm free when I live in accordance to it. 
and not just it, the ethic, but the one who created me for that ethic, which is the second point, who are our bodies for? It's not just what are our bodies for, but who? And so he answers that question here at the end of verse 13. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he lists four ways that our bodies are for the Lord. I'm going to cover these pretty quickly because I think he's pretty self-explanatory here, but, but they're really important. How are our bodies not meant for sexual immorality, but rather for the Lord? The first thing he says is that our bodies are not disposable but will actually be raised with Christ. The body, again, verse 13, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So he's challenging this notion that our bodies are just, you know, vehicles. They're useless vehicles. They're, 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 they're separate somehow from the true me, Right? And I, and I wonder if we think about that sometimes, if, if, if we justify or we rationalize sexual sin by saying, you know, I mean, this is just something that's, that's happened in my body, but my, my heart and my soul, that's what belongs to God, and therefore God will, will forgive, and, you know, and that, that's true, God forgives, but, but do, we, do you see what I'm saying? There's, sometimes there's this disconnect where we think our bodies are somehow lesser than our heart and our soul. And Paul is challenging that and saying, you no, know, your body isn't disposable. Your body is not temporal. This body will be raised. This body is eternal. We're not getting some brand new body that's completely detached from our existing body. We're getting a renewed this body. And so he's saying when we treat this body as if it's this detached temporal thing, we completely neglect a proper biblical anthropology. We are not temporal. We will be raised with Christ. So if this body will be the body that I'm carrying with me for eternity, even though, yes, it's broken now and gloriously will be renewed, how can I still look at the broken body and say it doesn't matter? Secondly, he says our bodies are members of Christ. Verse 15 Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Our bodies are members of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I mean, Jesus calls us as the church his body. We know that. We use that terminology all the time. But, but do, we, do we think of it properly or do we take that as purely figurative language? Because it's not purely figurative language. We are the body of Christ. We are Christ's representatives in this world. He, he lives in and acts through these bodies, Christians, that belong to us. And Paul's saying they belong to him. And therefore, if we act in such a way with these bodies that are actually members of Christ in a way that that makes then Christ join together in sexual immorality with another, 
that's unthinkable. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Like, that's unthinkable. He says here, never would you do that. Never, never. Ever, ever, ever. That's, in the Greek, it's literally never, ever, 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 ever. I'm kidding. But the emphasis is like that in the Greek, right? It just, it, it doesn't make sense. How do you take what belongs to Christ and give it to another? That's what he's saying. Do we have a, 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 a full enough understanding of our union with Christ to know that it goes beyond our heart and soul, but it's holistic? Our union with Christ is, is also bodily. Our bodies are members of Christ. That's the second thing he pulls out. The, sec- the third thing is, is he wants us to understand that sinning against our bodies, therefore, is more serious than some other outward sins. So I'm going to go back to verse 16, and and I'm going to read through verse 18. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's that union with Christ. Flee then from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So I think he's just driving home a point that in some ways we've already made. If our bodies belong to Christ, our bodies are not temporal, then to sin against our body is a a more serious type of sin. In other words, God, God can forgive all sin, but external sins lying, cheating, stealing, right? I mean, they may affect somebody else, but in terms of their, their actual stain on you, it's external. But a sexual sin is, is deeply internal and does great harm and damage that though even under the grace of God is carried as a wound and a scar in our bodies, it's a serious sin for that, re- for that reason. And finally, he says, again, related to this idea that our bodies are members of Christ, he says our bodies are, are indeed God's dwelling place. Verse 19, oh, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Our bodies are God's dwelling place. So Paul is saying, think about that. Would you desecrate God's temple? Would you, would you walk into the, the, the physical temple of God and, and would you spray paint blasphemous things on the wall? Would you, would you walk into the temple of God and, and would, you, would you go up and, and, and strangle and murder someone at the altar? Like, would you desecrate the temple that way? This is God's temple. Do you realize that your bodies are that? We know that the Holy Spirit indwells us, but do we think about that when we think about how we use our bodies? Our bodies belong to him. So Paul is, yes, he's addressing the lawness, the lawness, <laughs> ness, thank you, of the claim right? All things are lawful for me. Actually, no, they're not, right? But, but, but that's not a very necessarily compelling argument, right? 
I mean, we can be told, like, this is what's right and this is what's wrong, but our, our sinful hearts are going to want to do what's wrong very often anyway, right? Because motivation to just do the right thing versus the wrong thing without an understanding of, like, the why is usually not that good of a motivation. So Paul is trying to help them to see the why. Do you see the why? This is actually not freedom. This is actually damaging to you and enslaving to you. And it's desecrating to something that that you're not valuing enough. This body that God has given you that belongs to him. And when we talk about things like this in the church, and maybe we don't talk about them enough, maybe this is why we don't talk about them enough. There, there, There tends to be two kinds of responses because because what Paul said is true sexual sin sinning against our own bodies it does um, it does leave deeper wounds and lasting scars than other kinds of sins and so we we carry that we will respond one or two ways we're either going to respond with this what we call antinomianism where we basically say yeah but God's God's grace is greater so you know I'm not going to I'm not going to fret too much over sexual sin because I know God can always forgive. And, and, and what we're doing there is we're, we're going back to this, this messed up idea that our bodies don't really matter, which he's already addressed. Or we have this response. Maybe we're so racked with guilt that to hear something like this does nothing but just heap more pain upon us. And I want you to know that, that both of those responses, whether there's a bit of a flippancy in, a, in an antinomian response of like, hey, grace, grace covers, it's, all, it's no big deal, or this is such a big deal that I can't get out of bed, I'm so guilty. Both responses are actually rooted in the same misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is this. It's a misunderstanding of the love and the grace of God. It's not fully knowing God's love and grace applied. And so Paul ends with, I think, a a really important mental picture that points us back to Scripture. Look at verse 20. We've we've already said, what are are our bodies for? Who are our bodies for? We might label this, "Why why do our bodies matter so much? Verse 20, he says, for you were bought with a price. Why does your body matter so much? Because you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is he saying here? You are bought with a price. Well, I think those of us who are believers, we would say, well, Jesus died for us. And that's absolutely true. He ransomed us. That's the ultimate price paid for our body. And certainly that's something that Paul has in mind. But I think there's something else that he has in mind that will help to illustrate that truth even more so. Most biblical scholars think that what Paul is doing here is he's thinking back to Hosea. This idea that you were bought with a price. And I I love the way that that Stephen Um, who's a a pastor in Boston, kind of dramatically recounts this story of Hosea uh, because it, it, it helps us to to fully grasp the depth of the love and the grace of God. And so he, he, you know, he talks about the familiar story. Of course, Hosea is a prophet of God. God, God tells him you know, to go specifically go and marry a prostitute. Marry a woman who you know will be unfaithful to you. 
And the picture there that God is painting is this is, this is my relationship with my own people. Uh, they are my bride. They are my people, but they're continually unfaithful to me. Hosea, you're going to live that out. You're going you're gonna to prophesy by your life. Go and marry this woman, Hosea. And he does. He, he, excuse me. His name is Hosea. Her name was Gomer. Go marry Gomer. And so he marries Gomer. And indeed, Gomer is a, a, a prostitute. And he, he loves her. He takes her in. He, 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 he gives her a, a new opportunity at life and love and security. And she turns her back on that. And she goes back to the streets. And she continually does this, and she finds herself so broken, so beaten down, so laid low by her sin, her sexual sin, that she's, she's now on an, on an auction block, naked, in front of a crowd of, of, of men with money to just bid on her like a, like a piece of garbage, like just pure sexual property. And as she's hanging there, head low, hearing the, the bids, she hears this familiar voice who starts bidding higher and higher and higher to win that, to win her back. And she recognizes that voice of her husband, Hosea. And, and, and this is where Stephen Um tells the dramatic story so well. He said, you can imagine her in that moment where she, she's thinking, okay, he's come to get me, and now I know what's coming for me. This is his opportunity to bring me back and shame me. To bring me back and say, see, this is, look at what you've become. Now, now you really owe me because I've had to go to this length to bring you back out of this pit. And yet that's not at all what Hosea does because that's not at all what God does towards his people who continually run back after their sexual sin. He stands there and he says to us, you were bought with a price. In other words, you're of value so much so that I spared no expense for you. Come home. Come home. There's a beautiful truth that we need to remember whether we're applying the gospel to ourselves or whether we're trying to help somebody else who's caught in sin, and that's this. It's that, that when we have these lower affections that enslave us and ensnare us and we can't break free of, it's, it's rarely helpful to just say, this is wrong, start doing right. What, what, what is helpful is when a, a lower affection can be overshadowed and replaced by a greater affection. And this is what Paul is trying to encourage the people here. You are so, so uh, in love with these things that are so harmful, so sinful, so opposite of the freedom that Christ has brought you into. 
But do you remember, do you know what he has done for you? Do you know what this new identity in him is and, and what it's rooted in? He gave all for you to call you to come home. Not in shame, not in debt, in full security and love by your true lover, Christ. So I pray that for us as a church because I know that sexual sin is such it's such an issue. It damages the health not only of individual believers but the health of the church. And it is not in any way becoming of those who have a new identity in Christ. But we have a God who is gracious and giving and loving and extravagant who loves us all the more and calls us home. So if you are feeling the weight of your sin this morning, can I just encourage you, come home. Come back to Jesus. And if you have not maybe ventured into the depths of sexual sin, but you're, you're anticipating it, you're thinking about it, you're, you're, there's a temptation for you, can I say this, Christian? Stay home. Stay home. Because freedom is ultimately found within the parameters of Christ's good love and work and life for us in him. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to look to Jesus. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are, who are maybe bearing the weight of, of sin in their lives, whether it's sexual sin or any other kind of sin this morning, Lord, would you, would you just impress on them in such a, an unmistakable way that you are, you are the husband who purchased us back from the auction block. You are the, the good Lord, the good shepherd who beckons us to come home. And Lord, I pray that we would stay home. Remind us that, that we are your ambassadors, that our, our lives belong to you, Lord. Protect us from sexual temptation and sin in a way that would defame your name and destroy our lives. Help us as we spend the next few weeks talking about you know, where sexual uh, relationship is, is meant to be in marriage and, and how we talk about uh, what it means to be single in Christ. G give, us, give us more to grab onto and that we would live lives that are, that are fully reflective of who we are in Christ and to do it joyfully, satisfied in you. You are by far a greater affection. So we just, we confess, we plead, we rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. And I just ask you, Lord, day by day, help us to walk in light of that reality. You are good. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.